0: Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top
1: real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.
0: Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Brett Kepler with Trio Realtors in Cincinnati, Ohio. Last year, he closed 260 transactions with a total sales volume of 31 million and a GCI of 745,000. His average sales price was 118,000, of which 40% were buyers and 60% were sellers. He has a 13-member team, 5 buyer agents, 1 listing agent, 1 marketing manager, 1 office manager, 1 personal assistant, one REO manager, two REO support, and one team leader. Brett Kepler is the team leader of Team Trio. He's been an agent for 10 years, sold 1,500 homes in his career, and works the greater Cincinnati market. In this call, Brett talks about selling 12 homes his first year, personally selling 96 homes last year while his team sold the balance. How he and his team transitioned from selling 494 homes in 2013, mostly REO, to selling 260 homes in 2015, mostly traditional sales. The single twist that makes his expired listing program different and more successful than his competitors. Working with investors, what they want, and why they keep hiring him. How he gets one-third of his business from past clients and sphere of influence, including his annual marketing plan, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Brett. Hi, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. Hey, Brett. It's great to have you here. Brett, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate.
1: I uh, graduated from Miami University in 2003 and uh, it was kind of interesting because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was a marketing major, and I I added on a finance degree during my last year because I figured in 2003 the economy was pretty bad and I probably wouldn't get a job in marketing. And then the thought was I was going to move to uh, to Vegas and try a, a career playing guitar in low-paying settings, and I kind of scratched all of that. Around March, uh, to about uh, you know six or six weeks or two months before I graduated, and ended up taking the only job offer that I that I uh, had, and the only job offer that I uh, or the only you know uh, interview that I probably went on, which was a uh, a program with Macy's. that was sort of a you know in-store uh, training, and then they moved me up through corporate uh, type of. Uh, type of position. So it was a new thing they were doing when they were going to get college grads and try to bring them up through the ranks and then into the corporate side. And that, that lasted about a year until again, the, the economy continued to tank and they just sort of laid off everybody because retail wasn't doing very well. And I ended up getting a job with a, with a marketing company that was more of the stereotypical suit and tie, uh, gig, a lot of young people working there. We worked with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, selling uh, advertising and different advertising vehicles, and you know that's where I got my my uh, taste of the corporate life. You know the suit and tie gig and the uh, you know the, the fast track. You you stay here and you put in your time. Within a few years, you can make you know six figures. But it also made me realize how much I hate the corporate lifestyle, and that uh, I'm not really good being in a being in a place that, uh, you know, ever really rewards seniority because I was a young, I guess, whippersnapper, as they say, and I thought I knew, <laughs> you know, what I was doing. And uh, it, it was really hard to kind of see just, you know, uh, people who had good ideas being, you know, put in second place with people that had simply just been there for a while, for a while and maybe didn't have the right type of, uh, you know, work ethic or characteristics for uh, success. So I did that for about 18 months and I knew that simply jumping into another uh, corporate job wasn't going to be something that I really wanted to do. So I, I started looking before I actually you know quit in, at, at what my options were if I were to go into business for myself. And that was right around the time that uh, this was in 2005, 2006-ish, and the real estate market was really starting to take off. And I was reading all sorts of self-improvement books, and uh, I was reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I remember I was out, uh, you know, at a ski lodge. Um, this was in the winter of about 2005. And I was talking with some really wealthy uh, gentleman about, you know, his successes in life and, and his secrets to, you know, to wealth. And I remember he, he had two things. And one was real estate, and the other one was, uh, was something I can't remember now. So uh and I can't even remember then. So I basically chose real estate because I didn't know which other path to follow. But it all kind of made sense that uh you know that investing in real estate was, was gonna allow me to leverage, you know, other people's money and, and I had this assumption that you know whatever I bought would continue to appreciate until eventually, you know, I had all these buildings that I'd own free and clear. So I started dabbling in real estate while I was still working my corporate job and I remember seeing you know, how much my agent got paid for a poor family that I bought. And I thought, you know, he really didn't do a whole lot of work. And he just made about $7,500. You know, maybe I could get into the same line of work. It's salesy. It's, you know, commission-based. You get paid for performance. I could, you know, keep an eye on what's going on at the market. I could buy more buildings. It's only going to help me grow my empire. So I started taking real estate classes on the weekends for about two months, which was just miserable. Until I uh, I got my license, and then decided that right around that summer of 2006 that I was going to quit my uh, my marketing job, and and just go head first, you know, cold turkey into a real estate career.
0: How did it go that first year? Did you have a fast start or a slow start? I think I had
1: a fast start only because I worked for a company that they brought on. I worked for it was kind of a regional local company and they brought on several agents and they'd have kind of classes where they would put you through the training course. And then they'd sit us in this room. that was called like the bullpen and you would, you would kind of have to look at how everyone's doing. And they'd really want you guys to work together to go through some of the basics that they talked to. And then slowly I saw people dropping off or being asked to leave. And, you know, I think that that first year I did well, Not crazy well. There's a guy in my class that I think, you know, did over, I think he made over 120,000 commissions or something that first year, which was crazy. I made enough to, you know, pay my mortgage for a house that I closed on right before I quit my job so that I could, you know, obtain a mortgage, which maybe wasn't a smart idea, but I, uh, you know, I made enough that I knew that I can make a career out of it, but, you know, I didn't really know any better as to whether I was you know, on a path that was really fast or really slow because I really wasn't around, you know, too many people that were super successful. But I do know there are a lot of people that didn't cut it right away. So uh, I give myself maybe a, a B on a scale of A to F, I guess, for how I did.
0: Do you recall any numbers? Do you recall how many transactions you closed that first year? Yeah, that
1: first year, I know I made around $26,000. Before taxes and everything. And this is sort of after my splits. So I would, I would bring home, you know, around $2,000 a month. My first sale was to my then girlfriend, now wife, who I sold her a house about five doors down from me. And she was sort of forced to, to use me, even though I had no clue what I was doing. (laughs) Uh, so, you know, I, I, uh, I think I was able to convince people from my old workplace also to use me, which was great. And, you know, I ended up just somehow muddling together probably about uh, 12 or somewhere between 12 and 15 sales. I think probably that first year. Um, and, and my goal was to, to make about, you know, my goal was to make about $30,000. So I was pretty happy with 26, given that I don't think I closed anything for the first you know quarter.
0: You said the way that you pulled together those first 12 were basically through your sphere, people you knew from work and friends? That's
1: correct. So I was 25 or 26 at the time. And, you know, I had friends who were starting to buy their first house. So it it made a lot of, you know, it was easy for me to, to, to go and kind of help work with them. You know, I ended up trying all sorts of, of crazy things. I think I tried to go after for sale by owners for a while and that, and that didn't go over so well because uh, I had no clue what I was talking about. And I think that the majority of, uh, the majority of my business did come from my sphere or I would be given kind of some really crappy leads from my broker because they're the, you know, they're the types of leads that you don't care if you lose. So let's give them to the new guy. As opposed to the the good leads, you want to give them to a, a salesperson that actually you know knows what they're doing, but you know I think because the market was was so well, it was going so well at the time, um, it was really difficult to screw things up um, because it was just a matter of you know hey every every house was a lot safer you know every listing going to sell uh, a buyer going to find a property and. You know, chances are there, it's going to be a blessing if they get it because it's just going to continue to appreciate every year like it's been doing for the past couple. So there, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, difficulty when it came to selling these homes um, that, that you know, popped back up and, you know, when, when the bubble burst in 2012, 2013. That's when it would be really good to actually get homes sold. But when I was in the business uh, in the very beginning, it was pretty easy.
0: So how long have you been in the business now? been in the business for about nine and a half years. How many homes did you sell last year? Last year, and are you looking for the, the team
1: numbers or the personal numbers? Let's break out both. Sure. All right. So the personal numbers, uh, I did 96 personally. And then I guess the rest of the team did our total sales, I think, were 260.
0: So uh, 260 minus my96 is 164. You had about 260 team sales, and you closed 96 of those. Do you recall what the volume was on the, the total amount, the 260? Of the 260 is about 31 million of
1: volume. and then you know what I did was about uh, just under 11 million.
0: Do you recall what your GCI was last year? Yeah, our GCI. Uh, my personal GCI
1: was around uh, 270,000, and our team GCI was around.
0: We did right around three quarters of a million. How many homes did you sell in your best year, and what year was it? Our best year for our team was in 2000
1: and. Thirteen, we did four hundred and let's see, four hundred ninety-four sales, and that was a big combination of REO, and then we also had a, you know traditional sales that made up you know the difference. But I think we did a little bit over three hundred REOs that year, and the rest were uh, traditional and and sales through my buyer team.
0: Do you recall what the sales volume was that year? Our GCI was. About 1.25 million, and our total sales
1: volume was around 45 million.
0: You kind of brought up uh, an interesting point there. So, you started out, you sold 12 homes your first year. Last year, you personally sold 96, the team 260. A few years back, you were all the way up to almost 500 transactions. But it sounds like it's because the market was ebbing and flowing. So uh, in 2013, you mentioned that REO was a pretty big part of the the business at that time, about two-thirds of that business. Sounds like you shifted into REO. Are you still in REO? We're still in REO. It's, it's on a much uh, smaller scale, as is everywhere. I think
1: where most areas of the country recovered, we probably had another you know two years where we were still consistently selling you know, a high number of REOs. It was really last year that we saw a major nosedive with the number that we were carrying. So, you know, we kind of rode the wave, and I think we did a really good job of riding that REO wave. And we spent the last, really the last two years trying to transition into more of the traditional business without giving up our entire, you know, REO department. Because even though it seems like the market's picking up again, we know that the REO market's going to come back we already see signs that we're getting a lot more BPO orders. So there could be, you know, a a time and a place when, when, you know, we're going to need to staff that part of the business back up. So the goal is just to sort of keep the knowledge in place, keep the systems in place, operate on a smaller scale. A lot of that, uh, of the people who are doing REO sales are now focused on rentals. So we're able to uh, supplement some of the lost income that came from asset managers. Now with the rental properties, and we also think that there's a good chance that there's a lot of hedge funds out there. They're gonna start having to release some of their properties that they've been renting for the last you know, five or six years. So we also wanna be around so that when that opportunity comes available, we still have the resources to, to jump on that.
0: So last year the two hundred and sixty closings, how many of those were REO? So last year REO sales were about ninety. So we
1: had ninety REO sales and 2015. So yeah, a big drop. About two thirds of uh, when we peaked uh, has dropped since then.
0: Sure. So is about 30% of your business last year. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it's it, it's probably pretty equal in terms of thirds. Now I can tell you that the if we look at
1: units, you know, it's it's very likely that you know we're pretty even in terms of my my own production. The REO group's production, and you know, some of the uh, other team members the buyer agents um, that are on my team. If we look at, you know, which are the most profitable sales, our margins are extremely tight on the REO side of things. It's a lot more work, a lot less pay. So, from a profitability standpoint, you know, we, we know that the, the REO piece is not a money maker by any means.
0: Yeah, that's kind of interesting. You mentioned you're keeping your staff there. You're hedging for the future. And you mentioned that you're moving into rentals with that group. How many rental properties do you manage? Well, we have
1: between fifty and sixty properties right now, and it's it's mostly through a few only a few clients that have anywhere between ten and thirty properties that they're trying to hold off on selling. So a lot of them have been um, you know with asset managers or just with large property owners.
0: You also mentioned uh, an interesting idea, and that is these hedge funds that went in and bought up all kinds of property during the recession. They're holding on to them, renting them out, getting cash flows. And you're anticipating that at some point they may start to sell off some of those. How are you going to capitalize on that? Are you currently in communication with hedge funds, or are you just making yourself available because you have your REO department?
1: It's really the latter. So, you know, there's there's always been rumor that You know, this is the year when the hedge funds are going to start liquidating. Um, They've achieved the return they were looking for, and now the market can be better. You know, the money can be put elsewhere in the market and it'd be better. That hasn't happened just yet. A lot of the hedge funds are likely going to work through the same outsourcers that were working with uh, the large banks. So by maintaining the relationships with the the asset management companies, you know, we anticipate just keeping our information fresh. And when they do come with new opportunities and new assignments, these hedge funds are going to become the new banks that we saw all through the you know, 2009 through 2014 that were uh, really very prevalent.
0: Last year, you said you closed 96 transactions yourself, so you're still in production. What kind of transactions were they? How did you close 96 transactions by yourself?
1: Sure. Well, I have a very good assistant, and I have a lot of great systems uh, that we run, and. You know, fortunately, in, in coming out of the, you know, the REO industry and with that kind of being our niche uh, for a while, I tended to really work more on the, on the traditional side as opposed to working directly with the banks. So I never really had much involvement on the REO side outside of just uh, helping to create systems. And I really looked at it as, okay, I'm going to run this business. I'll put people in place who are going to be the communication connections between the banks. These people are going to run around and do this. These people are going to stay behind their computer and do that. So I was never really responsible for anything that went down in the REO department except that my name was on it and that I would uh, occasionally have to, you know, speak with someone who was upset about something that happened. So uh, I was able to actually, you know, preserve a lot of my time to work with, with, you know, my own personal clients and normal people that live and and work here in the area. Uh, But a lot of my business was also through those investors. So when you have a lot of the REOs in the area, and at the time we had the largest REO operation in the kind of the Southwest Ohio area, we had more opportunities for people than anyone else. And back in the day, it was it was so easy to sell an REO property that literally, you know, we would have a property, the banks weren't doing anything to fix anything up. They were just saying, what can you sell this for? How quickly can you sell it? And I don't want to hear from anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. So if I had an investor, I would, basically tell him, hey, Jim, I got this property, 123 Main Street. Go check it out. Tell me if you want to buy it. The asset manager would assign us the listing. They give us a price. I tell Jim, hey, we just got this in. You want to buy it? He'll say, sure. We listed the MLS right away. We fax up the MLS sh- uh, listing sheet. We faxed the offer right behind it from Jim. It gets signed off on within about, you know, an hour or two. And yeah, this is we, everything was done via fax. So don't, don't miss the fact that I did say (laughs) that, but we would, we would submit everything to that. And then, you know, the property would be on the market. It would be sold within about three hours and it was just, you know, taking, you know, candy from a baby was so easy. So I had a lot of people who really wanted to be my best friend because, you know, I got to, you know, pick and choose, you know, who got to buy what property and the banks were fine with it. You know, obviously, that changed after a while. They, you know, nowadays, it's you know, owner-occupants only, and we want to wait five days before we're doing offers. But back then, they were totally fine with just dumping these properties and getting them sold as quickly as possible. So uh, you know, I made a lot of, of really great clients, and those clients uh, continue to use me. And they're still out there you know, flipping houses, or they're still out there wholesaling. And it's, it's really become very turnkey that uh, I can sell their properties. I'm there to kind of troubleshoot. I'd say I'm more like the surgeon who the scrub nurse can really do most of the surgery. The surgeon's there, so that if something bad happens, he can you know, pop in and fix it. That's kind of the role I played, but it allowed me to still have a life, still manage everything that went on here at the brokerage, and still manage to close a lot of properties under my name.
0: So of the 96 closings you had last year, how many of those were these investor-type transactions
1: so probably about a third, anywhere from, uh, you know, 30 to 40%. Uh, a lot of the times it's just glorified paper pushing, as I call it. Um, they know what they want to buy it's a cash deal, no inspections. They just, you know, need me to write it up and, you know, get them to the closing table in a couple of weeks. So they are a fantastic, you know, group of people to be dealing with because there's no drama. Um, you know, there's usually two sides to every transaction and they buy something we list as well. And, uh, it's, it's. It just allows me to, you know, to sell a lot of property, not have the the kind of drama that comes with first-time buyers or with, you know, certain agents who are a little bit more high-maintenance, so it's really nice in that sense
0: you built the relationships with these investors during the REO market because you were at a a focal point. You were able to control and see a lot of that inventory coming on. Since the REO market has slowed down, well, you're still doing REOs. So is that why you're still working with investors? If somebody wanted to work with investors, how would they go about working with investors is what I'm getting at. And it sounds like you controlled supply inventory of what they wanted and you may still be doing that. Is that true?
1: Well, we don't really control supply anymore
0: because uh, the banks have
1: smartened up and they they put all these limitations where they really favor owner occupants and a fair bidding process. So being quick to to jump on a property uh, doesn't really work anymore. I think you know where, where my value comes into investors. It's really twofold. One, it's about making it as easy as possible for them to buy property and get information on property. So a big part of what I do is you know, when they want to see something, we get them inside the properties you know, as quick as humanly possible. We give them information right away about you know, what the you know, after improved value is. I'd say I'm very good at diagnosing uh, what I think a house will sell for. So generally when they ask me for my opinion and, and, and they budget with my opinion in mind, they're generally very successful because I'm I'm pretty accurate with my pricing for some of these renovations. You know, we help with ideas about, you know, what's the smart way to to flip this property and things like that. So I do play a role during some of the renovation process, especially if they're newer or if they have a unique type of property. But really it's about keeping it very drama-free. So I know that there's certain decisions I can make on behalf of my clients that they would agree with. And I know that if there's some drama going on where one agent might you know, overly communicate everything that's happening in the background with their client. Uh, I keep a lot of that just, you know, with me because I know how it's going to get resolved and I know how we're going to, you know, get it fixed. And then whenever we do hit a hurdle, whether it's an appraisal issue, whether it's a buyer issue, whether it's a condition issue, the benefit of doing, you know, a couple thousand REO sales is that, you know, we sell the, the crap of the crap and none of these, you know, properties ever go smoothly. So if you want to throw any type of problem at me or any kind of issue, chances are we've experienced it at some point and we learn from it or we've come up with a solution to fix it. So they know that they're in very good hands and they're okay with the fact that I'm not finding them the property
0: uh, because I think they see enough value in everything else that I bring. Uh, You mentioned a third was working with investors last year. What was the other two thirds?
1: So the other two thirds is really just normal people who are buying and selling properties. So, you know, whether it's my sphere of influence, whether it's, you know, new clients we would, you know, prospect for and and work with, or just a lot of referral business, you know, that's really the the bulk of, of, you know, how I probably make my income. So it's being that, you know, stereotypical real estate agent.
0: Fred, let's do this. Let's step back for a minute and make sure everybody knows where you're at. Where is Cincinnati, Ohio? Cincinnati, Ohio, in the
1: southwest corner of Ohio, we, we literally touch kind of with our, with our uh, you know, uh, bypass highway or whatever you call it. Uh, you know, we're right on the corner of Indiana and Kentucky, you know, and Ohio. So it, it's, a, it's a population of, you look at the four major counties that make up Greater Cincinnati, there's a little over 2 million people in there. But we're kind of in the Midwest, you know, the heart of uh, part of the Midwest. So it's a lot of you know very uh relaxed and casual, you know, type of, of people and, and type of business that goes down here. Uh nobody changes their locks when they buy a new house. So it's a very trustworthy place. I it, think it Mark Twain had said if if the world's coming to an end, he wants to be in Cincinnati because you know, everything there happens uh everything that happens in the rest of the world happens in Cincinnati ten years later. So a lot would say that we're behind the times in a sense. And I can uh you know, I can I can definitely agree with that in some of the way that I see that real estate's done, or the way I see agents market themselves. But it's a great, uh, it's a great place to live. We have a couple, you know, awesome sports teams, and we have a lot of uh, Fortune 500 companies that really, you know, help to keep the uh, the area growing. And we're slowly becoming uh, a little bit of a uh, a tech city. So uh, there's really a lot of, of effort going into rejuvenating our downtown and giving us a reputation as. A, uh, a great incubator for technology companies
0: can you please describe your current real estate market? The average price here in
1: Cincinnati uh, if you look at all the different residential types of homes we're at about hundred and sixty thousand dollars. single family properties are a little bit higher than that at about hundred eighty if you just look at what their average sale price is. Our days on the market is about uh, sixty days you know give or take a few weeks each way but currently the market's gotten. You know, to, to be really unbalanced, there's a, there's a big shortage of, of homes for sale right now and uh, a lot of buyer demand. It's mostly single-family properties. There's not a huge luxury market. Uh, I'd say last year, you know, there were probably less than 250 homes that sold over you know $750,000, which is where I'd maybe classify the luxury market as beginning but uh, we're, we're consistently ranked as one of the more affordable cities in the country, uh, one of the more affordable major cities, I should say. So a lot, there's a lot of opportunity here for people to buy houses and afford houses for less than what they would generally pay in rent. For a lot of that uh, reason, we, we do deal with a lot of first-time buyers because you can buy a nice, you know, totally renovated home for you know, around $100,000 and have a payment around 600 or 700 bucks. Which is which is really nice,
0: Brett. Do you have a a niche or a specialization in your market? Sure. I say
1: my specialization. What people really know us for, especially a trio, you know, with always REOs, and we had a lot of we had a lot of success doing that. At one point, I think it made up a oh, heck close to you know eighty percent of our business. So when we uh, created Trio Realtors back in two thousand and nine. We, we got labeled pretty quickly as an REO company because every sign we put out in the ground was, you know, representative of a foreclosed house. You know, we carried that reputation for a few years, and I was fine with it because we were making a ton of money, and, you know, it was great to be known as an REO, uh, you know, operation as we were also using that to our advantage to get more business from banks. But as uh, market shifted to, uh, you know, and this foreclosure started falling apart, You know, that was one, you know, area of, of, or the rest was one part of our reputation that we wanted to shed, you know, pretty quickly. So, beginning in about 2013, we started, you know, putting a much bigger emphasis on how we market traditional homes, how we, how we brand ourselves online, what type of service we're providing even on our REO properties, which notoriously was, you always got bad service on REO deals. But really trying to make sure that, you know, when, when people thought of TRIO, they didn't simply think of us as an REO company. We survey every agent that bought house from us, you know, ask them how the experience went, you know, how did things go with this specific person they might have worked with, and what are your thoughts on TRIO? And even though we got, I think one of the options was, you know, they are the most disgusting, you know, species on the planet. We did get that one a few times uh, from people, but for the most part, you know, we were known as an REO company and then, you know, also maybe a, a tech savvy company or, a, you know, a good service company. So we worked our way to kind of make sure that we were developing a reputation that, that didn't, you know, force us into that niche. But as we've evolved, we've, we've done a lot to do some rebranding. And, um, you know, now I think we're really past the reputation of being, you know, strictly REO. But my niche, you know, it still evolved from that. You know, I would say that my niche if if I'd say what am I an expert in, it, it probably is, you know, REO and, and working with investors. That's where I feel like I can give better advice and I can help navigate, you know, those waters better than, than anybody else. But, you know, where my focus is moving forward is really to move more into the niche of the you know, traditional, you know, real estate agents doing some traditional things to to earn higher commissions with less work because it just, uh, you know, anytime I sell a 300000 or $400,000 house and I look at what I get paid for doing the same thing that I did for a $120,000 house for, you know, a third of the income, it obviously makes sense to, you know, to focus on, uh, you know, the demographic that, that has nicer homes and what investors tend to usually deal with.
0: Now, Brent, I understand that you've been moving into this traditional medium and you've had some success. Last year you worked uh, for instance, expired listings. I believe it was about fifteen percent of your your business that would put it somewhere around thirty to forty transactions closed. Can you tell us what you're doing with expired listings? It's been a pretty interesting process with expired. You know, it's something else that I did last year just to help
1: you know bridge you know where this is coming from is I got into the software business and and I put myself into a, a completely different you know, type of industry, which was software, and I learned a lot in that element that I have applied to real estate. And a lot of it comes from the online marketing that that's done over there to really build users. And we started looking at, okay, how can we use these same methods and apply them to go after expireds? You know, on the traditional side, what we do with expireds is is we we built some some software that does a really good job of scraping some different places around the web where we collect information on people whose houses have recently expired. So instead of going and buying expired lists from companies like Red X, which we tried that, but it's a lot of the same information around the same time that other people are getting it. And we found that we were basically just competing equally against people that had money and, and were going down the same path. And it just it didn't we had really no competitive uh, edge with that. So you know, as I was looking and learning about how people can scrape different websites for information, you know, we built a little tool that you know, once we you know, pull the names of people who have expired in the, in the certain areas that we want to target, we can pull out a ton of information about who that person is. We can usually find out where they work. We can usually find out how you know, these, these work companies um, arrange their email addresses. So it's usually you know, first initial last name, or, you know, we can also just search some other sites and we can usually find something pertaining to that person where maybe they were part of a scrapbook club and their email address is there. They're part of a church newsletter and their email address is in there. But there's so much information available now that, you know, we decided that going and, and manually finding ways to reach these people that aren't just, you know, uh, publicly listed phone numbers and, you know, mailing addresses – is going to give us a, a huge advantage when it came to actually making contact. So what we're able to do with our, uh, as we go after expired, is each day we pull what's expired manually. We, we throw them into a little program we built. We come back with a bunch of information. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. But we find that we're pretty accurate in, in reaching these folks on personal emails or sometimes on personal cell phone numbers. And then what we do is we drive them to, you know, we we, we kind of drift them through a series of emails that hey, you know, is your is your house still for sale? Or we're interested. And then, you know, hey, we we would love to give you a free report. And and we send them about seven different emails, each one with some sort of a call to action. Uh, if they, you know, click on a link in there, if it looks like that they're playing around or that they're interested, sometimes we just get straight up, you know, emails back, you know, from people saying, you know, yeah, I'd love to talk to you or how did you get this email address <laughs> or, you know, whatever it might be. But we just kind of found that, you know, by being smarter with how we reach people, uh, we're actually engaging those, those expireds in, in a totally isolated way. And it's allowing us to have real conversations instead of just being another, you know, a uh, package that shows up at their doorstep or, you know, uh, you know I- another message on their answering machine. And that's really led to us uh, having some great conversations and kind of standing out from the crowd and we're able to take these properties, you know, list them and sell them right away because it's such a it's such a great time to sell right now. That uh, it, it's not that difficult to take an expire that that had trouble, tweak it a little bit, you know, adjust the price maybe a little bit, and then uh, and then get them under contract.
0: It sounds to me like what you're doing is you're getting more contact information, unique contact information. That's your competitive advantage. So you're starting like everybody else through the MLS, say, and pulling out the expireds. And then you're going a step further than what most people do. Most people would then, of course, have the address. They would research the seller's name, maybe find a phone number. They have the address. You're going the next step and getting a personal email, a cell phone number, etc., by researching out on the web to really dig into who that person is.
1: Yeah. So usually, it, usually we're right. I, when I say usually, I mean, you know, more than 50% of the time we're right. You know, if, if there's someone who, whose name is Jim Smith and they, and their house expired, chances are we're going to have a thousand Jim Smith and the odds of it being the right one. Uh, I don't know, but, uh, you know, so there, there's some people that, that, you know, we're hitting that have no clue what we're talking about, but, uh, you know, if we do it on a large enough scale, um, You know, we're still uh, finding that that we're
0: pretty successful in opening up conversations with some people that recently expired. Once you have the contact information, you said you put them in a seven-email drip system. You mentioned some of the the context of those emails. Are you doing anything else? Are you making phone calls, sending out letters, knocking on doors? I need to be doing more calls. Uh, That's one thing that uh, we we do find the, it's much
1: easier to find email addresses and phone numbers. And I've never really wanted to to call local home numbers because I just know that I'm going to be competing with 12 other people. By the time I get up, there's all these ambitious agents who've already called. So, and, and by get up, I mean, I'm usually up at seven, but there's people that get up at like four and five in the morning and they're, they're ready to go as soon as it's like 6am. So, you know, I, I feel like if I were to ever call on, on what generally is a public home number, I rarely greet people that are happy to speak with me. So, you know, we may expand on, you know, how we interact with people by doing some more, uh, more things in, you know, with either voice-to-voice contact or going out there and knocking on the door in some capacity. But for now, uh, the strongest piece of information we get from these folks is an email address. So we really focus on you know, how can we connect with them better through email. And if anything, you know, what we will probably improve is going to be the messages we send, maybe the frequency we send, do some testing on that arena, find out what people really want, um, and then try to do a better job of being more accurate with, you know, where we get some of those email addresses, so we're not, you know, wrong, you know, 60% of the time, uh, and we're, you know, sending stuff to people that is have no clue where it's coming from.
0: It sounds like the entire campaign is a, a seven-email drip. Let's talk about that. How often are you sending the emails? Are they going out every day? You no,
1: know, they're going out about every couple of days. Uh, we don't send on the weekends. We just send through the week, and really, what the way we've set up the emails is, is they are, it's through MailChimp. It's a very basic template. Uh, we don't want them to appear to be pre-formatted, So they're very conversational, you know, Hey, I noticed that your house just expired. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of different things to kind of get houses sold. You know, for example, we do this, this, and this, uh, are you still looking to sell? Or are you, are you completely out? Cause I may have some buyers who are interested. And then a lot of people write back, you know, hey, you know, hey, Brett, thanks for reaching out. You know, right now we decided to just keep living here, but you know, in a year I might reach out to you and and talk about selling. And then other people are just, how'd you get this email? You know, remove me from your list, or you know, it, or nothing. <laughs> we just get crickets. Uh, and then a couple of days later we'll send out another email that talks about how great we are at pricing homes. Now we have an instant valuation. You know, maybe price was the issue, maybe it wasn't, but here's, you know, but you can go here, we'll give you an instant, you know, price valuation. And, you know, then we kind of send them down that path and then we have people that occasionally go there and and click through it and we can reach out and say, you know, this is a really quick, you know, valuation, we'd love to come see the house in person and give you something that's a little bit more custom. Obviously, it's low pressure, you know, we just want to help you out. And then maybe even you'll use this to buy or something. So we really try to come in where we're not just going to come in and be straight salesy, um, but we really want to help them out And then, you know, if they ever feel like they want to reward us with their business in some capacity, they can. Uh, I think we have a – then a couple days later, we'll send something about, hey, if you're going to interview a new agent, here's 10 questions you must ask. And it's a little report. And, you know, we send them all the – we send them the lead pages where it's just a single-page formatted, you know, get this report. And then we know that once they request that, that maybe they're hiring folks. And you know, we'll we'll follow up with, hey, just you know, here are the answers to these questions from us. You know, when can we come out and interview in person? So, you know, we have a follow-up system for each one of these letters. But uh, and then the last one that, that I've you know learned is very important is we send a letter that says, you know, the things we hope that you've been able to benefit from some of the value that we've sent. You know, this is the last time that we're gonna be reaching out. Um, but if, you know, we can never help you, let me know. And we get a lot of people who finally respond to that email because they know that, Hey, we're going to stop and they've maybe meaning to speak with us and they've never gotten around to making the time to actually chat. So that seems to be, it's our first email that is, Hey, how's it going? Are you still interested in selling? You may have some buyers. That's our most powerful email. And our second most powerful email is that last one that says, Hey, you know, this is it for me. And then people start saying, yeah, sorry. I haven't got back to you in the last two weeks. Here's my situation. So it's been been relatively effective, but of course, it can always be improved.
0: What is the result? We talked about absolute numbers, but let's talk about percentages. If you were to bring in 100 expires into your program, how many would fall out the bottom and become clients? How many would you list? Sure. We get about 10% that
1: would hit on one of our emails. And then that would probably turn into somewhere out of those 10 people, two or three would become appointments. And then we probably get two out of three of those. Uh, usually there's one property that is expired because they're just not realistic or there's something majorly wrong or they're in short sale or something like that. So usually, you know, we'll get about a 2% return on that. But a lot of the time as well, we have people that, you know, will reach back out to us. And this is a program we started for a few months. But there's people we contacted three months ago. They're taking a break from the market, and then they'll reach out again. So I think that there's going to be some uh, additional benefit that's going to come over time. You know, these folks don't just drop out the bottom. We still market to them with other materials. But it's more the uh, kind of the generic, you know, newsletters we send out and things of that nature. So we're still in front of their face. We still have great emails for them, but it may not be the right time you know, for them to go and sell, but, but it's a way for us to massively increase, you know, the number of leads or potential leads and uh, to increase our mailing list size. So we're, we're touching a lot of local folks who are, you know, either in the middle of a real estate transaction or possibly going to be, you know, jumping right back into a real estate transaction very soon. So I think the quality of leads is great.
0: Let's move on to a different topic. Uh, we're still talking about lead generation. But last year, about 30% of your business, about a 30 your business, came from past clients, sphere of influence, referrals, and repeats. Let's talk about that. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? My total uh, sphere of influence is about little under
1: 4,000 that we have. My past clients uh, isn't as big as, as I would think. It's about a little under 400 people um, and I think a lot of that is because I, I do a lot of repeat business for folks and through the REO years you know I, I would have one guy that you know, I do 15-20 sales with you know throughout the year so you know I, I think I have a pretty good size you know, sphere list for, for someone who's been in the business as long as I have um, you know our mailing list for what we send out to for people that maybe I don't know but just you know general leads and things like that is over 10,000 of local folks in the area. So that's, that's pretty valuable, but obviously we don't get a huge return on that because there isn't the kind of relationship there uh, that would exist with my actual sphere or especially with my past clients.
0: You have about 400 past clients and did I understand correctly your sphere of influence is around 3,600?
1: Yeah, I think Trump at 3,800 is about what I have in there for just, you know, what I say is people that would either, I need to recognize their name or you know they'd recognize my name or, You know, we either see each other, we kind of have different levels of, you know, we have, you know, A and B and and C type of of spheres that we label them. So an A would be someone I'd recognize, a B would be someone who I might know their name, but not be able to pick them out of the lineup. And then C are just kind of those people that, I don't know, somehow they know me, but I have no clue who they are. Or somehow we were, you know, engaged in, in something, but there's really no connection there.
0: When you were in the REO business uh, heavily just a few years back, and you were working with all these banks, and buyers were coming in to purchase the properties, did you make an effort to bring those buyers into your sphere?
1: Yeah, we made an effort, but uh, we didn't follow through with it on it very well. We had something that we called orphan uh, clients. So you know, the plan was the thing is how most agents don't really follow up, and that uh, I think there's there's some surveys out there that basically if You know, after so many years, if you ask the agent, you know, the name of their real estate agent, they wouldn't know because usually the follow-up is so poor. Our plan was to take those folks. Chances are within some email thread, there was, uh, you know, accidentally forwarded to us with the email address of that client, um, you know, who bought something with another agent, or at least we would have their mailing address so we could reach back out to them and, you know, try to earn their business that way. Uh, We started doing that. We still sort of track it but it never really took off because it was a lot of legwork tracking down who these people are and the majority of our marketing strategy is all online and it's all email based so if we didn't have emails for this for these folks then you know it, we didn't see a ton of value in, in keeping track of all the other information
0: how are you tracking your database uh, are you using a certain type of software or CRM sure so we use follow up boss as a way to aggregate
1: the leads from the different sources out there and then i have a team of buyers agents who we just rotate those those leads through i don't uh, do anything to touch any of those leads and then i have a marketing manager who kind of maintains that and ensures people are getting responded to with and that sort of thing uh we had i think top producer for years but eventually just turned into a forty dollar a month database cause we are using none of the other features or tools so primarily it's follow-up boss and then um MailChimp is where we're, we're doing all of our uh, storing of additional contacts and all of our mailings through.
0: Can you walk us through what your annual marketing plan is to the past clients of Sphere of Influence? Sure. So we have a, it's, like, it's a 30 touch system that we do. So every
1: two weeks we're pushing out something called a, it's a coffee time. It's on my newsletter. I'm putting together a quick little video. Um, that is is hopefully somewhat relevant about either something going on in the city or something just about you know real estate in general. I uh, try to keep it under you know a few minutes, and then we'll also promote sales listings. Uh, we'll have some additional content that we you know we might pull an article from the from our blog or from one of our social media profiles to to put on there, and we just give them a little one page newsletter that says hey don't forget about me, I'm still in the business, we're still successful. And you should trust us with your friends and family. So that goes out about every two weeks. Then we have a quarterly newsletter that we that we aggregate uh, content that we push out on social media that's that's local, um, and we create that piece and that goes out, uh, you know, every three months. Um, then we have just some some general postcards that we send out. We might send out one straight up asking for business, uh, one that just talks about you know here's our team, and this is what we bring to you. Or something about our our you know services and you know uh, what we can offer you know in, in some capacity and uh, you know it kind of changes a lot in that regard we do send out a Christmas card and little Christmas gifts of some kind so one year we get ornaments one year we did little little keys that were USB drives and uh, it was crazy because we decided to put a little short message on each one and uh, that took forever. And I was ready to kill myself, but we got it done only to find out when we shipped it through the postal service, you know, we kept getting reports about people's uh, packages getting open and those things stolen. So there's really nothing of value on that except for an awkward looking message from me, but that wasn't uh, super successful, but uh, we, we try to do that around Christmas time. And then, um, you know, we'll usually touch them, you know, about every month or two, we'll come up with some other reason to reach out, whether it's just sending out an email you know, saying, "Hey, let's uh, you know, here's a, a great deal on you know tickets for a Red game this summer, or something of that nature." We'll kind of fill in the you know the blanks there until we get to uh, what hopefully ends up to be about thirty touches per year.
0: The postcards. How often do you send those out? We send those out about once a quarter. <laughs> you said there was a quarterly newsletter. Is that physical or electronic? Our Coffee Times, which are our online newsletter. Those go out every two weeks. And then we do a a printed
1: newsletter called My2Cincinnati, which is a very clever title for a newsletter, (laughs) if you ask me. You know, that's where we have a little update. You know, since most people want nothing to do with us online or just sort of that all goes into their promotion box or their spam box, who knows where it goes, we want to make sure that we're also reaching those folks um, in another way so that they remember us. So we do a little bit of uh, snail mail still. But the important thing for us is that we, we don't, send out anything that's not pretty much completely custom. So we don't do any of the services where they do the content for you. We want it to all be very relevant, and we want people to know that we're not just trying to fill them up with, you know, we're not just sending them something to send them something, but we're actually putting time into the message into to the, uh, you know, to the content so that they actually can get some value out of it because there's nothing worse than getting those, you know, those uh, canned newsletters that I get every Friday, I swear, from, from mortgage lenders. I'll have like five that all come in a row because I'm on five of the same lenders list who are all in the same company. So, you know, we want to avoid that and make sure that we really stand out and that our messaging and that our marketing materials are, are unique compared to everyone else
0: in the area. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Let's talk about that online newsletter you send out every two weeks. That's happening pretty frequently this coffee time. You said there's a short video. There might be some sales statistics. Do you have a call to action in there? And if so, what is it? We do I would say it's not that powerful because you know
1: really it's the purpose is it should be to actually drive business but really it's more of an awareness campaign I kind of say it's kind of like putting your your head on a bench you know you want people to see you and remember you so we're not necessarily looking for for leads that way or you're know, looking for the low-hanging fruits and being proactive that's kind of the, more the thing we do with with sign calls and with our expired so that's where we're going out and trying to find them we just really meant to be Informational and enjoyed, but you know what we are looking to do is is really push more of the home valuation stuff, you know, down at the bottom where it's hey you know refer a friend to us or hey here go go here and find out what the current value of your house is. We don't really have a great call to action since most of the people that that get this at least get the newsletters and get the coffee times are really people who are part of the sphere. And uh, yeah, that's one area we can definitely improve though.
0: You mentioned before that you're doing a lot of work with investors. Are your investors in this group? Are you following up with them through this medium? They're in the group, but it's it's not
1: necessary. I mean, uh, to, to really market to these folks because they're more like drinking buddies than they are people I got to win over. You know, we're almost like business associates, and you know we have such a, a history with most of them that you know we're pretty consistent. If they're going to buy something, they're going to use me. And a lot of those guys also don't really like referring me out to friends and family because all it's going to do is mean that, that, you know, someone else might get an advantage or might get handed the property before they do. So, you know, to go out, to go up to them and say, Hey, rec- recommend me to your other, you know, investor buddies. That's like saying, Hey, give away my, you know, my awesome handyman for, you know, 10 bucks an hour who does awesome work. Next thing you know, that guy's going to be, you know, picked up and, and, and gone and, you know, used by everyone else and, and you're going to lose them. So, you know, I don't see a a ton of referrals that come out of my, you know, my investor net.
0: It sounds to me like the way you're staying in front of your investors is you get a hot property and then you start going down your list and contacting people to see if they're interested.
1: No, I don't do any of that. um, So they just come to me with, uh, you know, hey, you know, can we see this property sometime soon? I mean, really, it's, it's, it's very easy. I think it's I think that you know i've I've done enough with these folks. a lot of them I've really helped them develop their business that we've kind of built their business together in a sense that um, you know there really isn't uh, you know I, I don't feel they owe me anything. One thing that I think agents do that is, is a huge mistake with investors because they take a lot of things personally. If an investor buys a property through somebody else, you know they they take that personally if an, if an investor lists with somebody else, they take it personally. And I don't have any of that drama in the way I run my business only because it, it doesn't work with those types of people. So, you know, I, I'll tell them all the time that, hey, I don't care who you buy it through. I know that agent, you're going to get a huge advantage calling them up directly because they'll tell you what you need to bid. You know, and, and I'm not going to have that entire information. So go buy from that person. If that means you got to list them, that's fine too. So I'm kind of like that, that cool, you know, uh, guy friend who, you know, isn't going to bust their balls. You know, I'm not the type that's going to, uh, you know, take it personally. And, you know, they know that they can come to me, even if they're having trouble with the, the agent that they're working with, and they can say, hey, can you help me out with this? I have brought it through this guy, and it's a, it's a huge pain. And I'll kind of give them some, uh, you know, some tips on, okay, well, here's how you can structure it, or here, let me just, let me call them up, and, and let's do it this way. So I'm, I'm that resource to them that they just know it's much easier, you know, to work with me, um, because they either have connections with people who are selling these properties and I just make it easy. I make the whole process easy, and there's no strings attached, and you know anything of that nature. So, you know, I have I have enough people in my you know if I look if I want to look at how many people I have just on my investor list, which I kind of keep separate from my my past. I guess they're some of them are part of the past five, but I have a separate investor list of about 150 or 200 people that are are, are bringing me enough uh, business as well that you know the moment they want to get into something, and they see a property, they call me. And, you know, we get under contracts, uh, you know, with them as, as best we can.
0: Well, Brett, I know you built up a team to handle a lot of this business and volume. Let's talk about the team. Could you outline for us who's on the team?
1: Start at the top, which is me, and I'm the team lead. I'm in charge of managing our buyer's agents, uh, which we have a group of. Um, I help oversee the REO department. And then I have my traditional business. And then, you know, my right-hand person is named Sarah. So she's my assistant, and basically we share the same brain. So she's the one who is, I'm out you know, running around town or trying to fix problems. She's the one making sure that, that all my clients are being taken care of. A lot of the times they'll call her first, knowing that she'll answer every time instead of me, which is a good feeling. But she's sort of taking care of things when I'm unable to. And then I have a marketing manager on the traditional side. She's in charge of lead management. Uh, she's in charge of all the marketing that we push out. And she really is, is there to kind of help the, the buyer's agent um, as well. She's licensed. Uh, my assistant is not. But she's just another person who totally supports, you know, everything we do here at this company. Um, then we have five buyer's agents. That uh, Actually, we have six buyer's agents, technically. Five in Cincinnati and one in Dayton, Ohio. We have, you know, there's one listing partner who, who does both buyers and, you know, will also do some listings when I can't handle them or I don't want to handle them. And then on the REO side, we have a uh, REO manager. So this was a person who I brought on. When I made a transition, I had a partner for a, a you know a brief period of time who was really heading up the REO. We had to make a transition. I bought him out. And I knew that I could not just step in and fill his shoes and roll on the REO department. So I brought someone from another company who had REO experience over to take that on. So she's the REO manager. And then uh, there's, there's two people who also assist on the REO side. Um, you know, just to help with, you know, managing a certain account or to manage all the utilities and, and bills and and do some of the miscellaneous work. Then we have an office manager who's in charge of the brokerage and all of the, you know, ingoing, uh, or incoming and outgoing uh, funds and payments to everybody. Um, we have a couple uh, couriers who are running out signs and flyers and, and writers and things of that nature. And then... I think that's about I think that's about it. If that's not thirteen. I'm probably missing some, you know, one or two people that they kind of fill in the gaps, you know, here and there.
0: You mentioned in the buyer agents you have five there in your home office, and then you have one in uh, Dayton, Ohio. Oh, what's going on there? Is that are you you're working on expansion teams? You know, not
1: really. We, I was with four brokerages in five years when I first got in real estate. So. I literally jumped from my first to my second to my third to opening up Trio you know, by the fifth, my, my fifth year in business, more or less. And you know, we did that because as our team kept growing and we kept capping out, each company kept getting more expensive and we really weren't getting a lot of benefit being an REO. So in order to have control of our leads and, and uh, in order to just really save money and be able to spend that on marketing or, or just even maintain a decent margin as REO was getting pretty tight, you know, we, we, uh, opened up trio and, you know, from there we just found that we had so many properties, you know, and, and so many sign calls that it was exhausting to, uh, you know, to, to, to even turn those phones on to our agents. I mean, we would get, you know, anywhere from you know, 20 to 30 calls a day from folks wanting to go out and see property. So we built up a, a large number of buyers agents over the course of that time, and um, have just you know we've, we've kind of maintained those same folks. A lot of what we do is really build into them on how to create their own business. Uh, there's a lot of teams out there that I think they really try to uh, try to sell everything under the team name, and, and they really want to make sure that the team lead gets all the credit. And you know it, it's one of those okay, we're going to keep you very compartmentalized. Uh, For me, it's more, you know, we want to make sure that you're building your own database, that you know how to, you know, the importance of marketing, that, you know, one of these days, whether you go or I go, you know, you're able to actually, you know, maintain yourself. So, you know, I look at it almost as a kind of a combination of, yeah, they're on my team, there's buyer agents, they're running leads, um, but also from being the broker of the company, they're kind of like independent agents that I'm wanting to develop. And I'm wanting to build into, and if, if, if they want, if they grow to the point where they want to have their own team, then I'd love to house them within my company. But, uh, the idea of going out and actually hiring, you know, or just, or bringing on and recruiting independent agents is never something that I've, that I've wanted to do because it just seems like a lot of handholding and a lot of babysitting when I can't build into them in a manner that makes them better. So it's always really frustrating to have people constantly making mistakes, but I have no control over you know, uh, whether they get any better or not. So, you know, the way that I set up my, my company has been one that, you know, either you're on the team or you're out of the company, but when you're on the team, you know, we're going to let you, you know, develop, you know, as yourself and not as simply someone who's on team. Does
0: that mean that they're generating their own business, their own leads? Yeah. So we have, we
1: have two commission structures. If we give them the lead with the 50 50 split, and if they bring their own lead it's a 70 30 split. So, and then if they get a repeat, you know, if, if we give them a lead and then that person, you know, ends up buying something again, you know, that's their client. Good job for maintaining them with the 70 30 split. Or if that person that they, you know, that they have success with has a friend, you know, that's now a 70 30 split. So, what we really do is, is we help to kind of incubate some of our new agents help them build their database, really force them to build their database and, you know, kind of prime the pump a little bit with some clients. And then it, it's really a matter of, okay, let's let's go ahead and act like we're successful now instead of waiting until you're successful and, and wishing that, you know, you would have done all these foundation things like build a database and start collecting these little reviews and, you know, just making sure that you're constantly marketing and you have a routine in place. Um, you know, it's kind of real estate 101 that, You know, we do try to grow each one of our agents, you know, to be successful, you know, on their own, not just, you know, being dependent upon us. A big reason for that, too, is that, you know, the one thing I've noticed with the market as it it goes up and it goes down is that there's really no security, you know, in this business. You're kind of at the the mercy of what the market does. So in, in the same light that I want to make sure that I'm diversifying my own business, I only feel it's necessary to make sure that I'm also helping the agents I work with to be well-rounded and self-sufficient.
0: Are you profitable?
1: Yeah, we are profitable. Uh, I would say that um, the REO department and the income we make from that, the income that we we make from the buyer agent team pretty much covers all the overhead that goes into running this business. So anything that I do on my own um, is basically done... You know, with with 100 percent, you know, commission income. So, you know, we're probably somewhere. You know, we make somewhere around maybe 30 percent of uh, what we net um, of, of of what our GCI is.
0: Has that changed over the years? Was it more or less during the REO days versus traditional?
1: Yeah. It, so it used to be that you know, when REO first started, they would pay three and a half percent commission, and there wasn't a whole lot of work because all their properties sold as is, and it was just a matter of okay, list didn't get it done. And then over time, the commissions have steadily dropped to two and a half or two percent, and the requirements have gone way up. And they want you inspecting their properties on a weekly basis. They want you overseeing construction management on a regular basis. So we had to continue to you know hire people and get smarter with you know how we were able to meet the standards when our average sale price in REO was in the $60,000 range. So we might make somewhere around twelve or 1500 bucks, and they'd expect, you know, six to eight months' worth of work. So there was no way that that was going to be able to be profitable unless we found ways to get much smarter with how we did inspections, you know, how we did repairs, making sure we're very proactive in getting properties moved off our books and sold as, as efficiently as possible. Selling things and closing things the first time, not going back on market. So, you know, when you looked at how we could possibly make this business work, you know, as other agents were, were really suffering, uh, we just kept getting, I think, smarter and smarter. And it, it led to us growing, you know, pretty well compared to other agents that, that either would lose the business or just become overwhelmed. And it, it's amazing how quickly your house of cards can fall if you, if you can't keep up with what the bank's demands are. So we tried to stay on the forefront. I think being, you know, a 27, 28-year-old, you know, pretty tech-savvy person allowed me to really go out and introduce a ton of technology and systems into how we operated.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier that you branched out and started working on a, a software business. What, what was that? What are you talking about there? Yeah,
1: so, you know, in t- about two years ago, we took a lot of what, I think I learned from the REO side, which was really implementing systems for real estate. And as we transitioned back into you know, traditional real estate, you know, I found that systems are pretty lacking amongst the vast numbers of agents. Uh, usually the strategy for, a, for a, a, you know, representing a buyer through closing is that once you're in the contract, you, know, you cross your fingers and you pray and you hope that you get through without any issues. And if you were to ask an agent, you know, do you have sort of a process you follow, they'd say, sure, it's all up in their head. And, you know, you reach a certain point as a successful agent, it starts getting, you know, extremely difficult to remember all the details. Uh, And I remember when I I had to go to a calendar, an actual calendar, you know, on my phone as opposed to keeping it all in my head. I remember that day pretty clearly because I think I missed my third appointment maybe in two days, and I thought, okay, this is not a good way to do it. And I think agents are experiencing the same thing, that they're always nervous about, what am I forgetting, what am I missing? You know, what I afraid to communicate? Because when you're doing things totally on your own, you know, there's no need to document or to keep track because you think you're on top of things and there's no one telling you that you're not. At the same time, you know, I'm running a real estate team and my biggest concern was, you know, how can I be sure if my assistant's doing everything she's supposed to be doing? And is she really following my systems the way she should? Because what we had were paper checklists and you know, with paper checklists, they don't jump out to you and say, "Hey, it's time for you to do this," or you know, there's no real way to be able, you know, to read it like a matrix and see how everything fits together. So we took, you know, some of the things that we liked about some of the applications that we were using, uh, and some of the things that we had with the on the REO side, and we thought, you know, how can we build something internally that will allow us to just sort of stack these checklists on top of one another so that You know, I just want to know what do I have to do today, what's coming up tomorrow, and then what's past two. So just give me a a very, you know, a tight window into what I need to be focused on. I don't want to worry about what's coming up next week. I want the system to tell me when it's time to, you know, schedule the walkthrough. I want the system to tell me when it's time to to pretty much do everything. So that, you know, one, my assistant could be, uh, you know, held accountable and we can make sure that no more mistakes were being made or forgotten. It also, you know, helped with, Know, coverage. So if she were gone, I'd have no clue what was happening because again, everything's in her email or in her head. So we knew that we had to get our systems, you know, out of her brain and onto you know, some sort of platform. And then the other thing is, you know, I've lost two assistants who have left and gone and gotten a real estate license. And it's pretty common. I, I, you know, I take credit for that because apparently I make it look really easy uh, to <laughs> jump in. And and I think eventually, you know, they get to the point where it's like. Well, geez, I'm I'm practically doing everything. I should uh, just get my own license. And, you know, if I sell, you know, X amount of properties, I'll make what what I want to make here. And, you know, I can do whatever I want. So, uh, I'm always scared that, you know, everyone I bring on is going to go and get their freaking real estate license. And then I got to retrain, you know, someone all over again. So it also came down to, you know, I want something where I can just basically plop someone in the seat and say, just do what it tells you to do. And we started working on next. It wasn't called that at the time. It was called the software tracking system that we use for our office. It was a very long name, not, not nearly as catchy. But, uh, you know, it, eventually that turned into, you know, hey, maybe I should repurpose this because I wonder if there's other teams and other agents that might benefit from this. I went through an accelerator, and I, you know, uh, which if you're not familiar with that, basically there are these investment companies out there that will give you, you know, I think from this company I got $40,000. And a bunch of training on how to, you know, launch a startup. And uh, they put you with a bunch of other, you know, people who have little businesses and some are just ideas, some are established businesses. And, you know, I started going down this path of, okay, how can I, you know, treat this like an actual business? Really trying to attack a problem that we had in our own company
0: that I know others have, you know, uh, across the country. So it sounds like the software Next is a task management software, is that correct?
1: That's correct. So, you know, Next comes into play after you sign paperwork. So, if you sign a listing, basically then it's okay, what do you have to do between now and expiration? And everyone has a process, it's just normally documented very poorly or it's up in somebody's head. And you know, if you're doing one or two transactions a year, obviously you don't need the system because you have nothing to do but wake up each day and think about what you're doing to service your one client. But if you're juggling multiple properties, then you need something to help keep you on track. And it's amazing that the brain power you save by not having to think where you are in the timeline of each one of your deals is amazing. It's like just a, a giant weight lifted.
0: Is Next uh, available to the public? If an agent was listening now, could they go find out more about it? And if so, where?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's it's spelled N-E-K-S-T. So yeah, if you go to nextapp.com and that's N-E-K-S-T-A- P as in Paul, another P is in Paul, dot .com. So Next App, uh, you can go there and sign up. Uh, we have a free version that you can try out, um, see whether or not it fits for, for you. Uh, we have a a version for single agents. We have a version for teams. We also have a version for transaction coordinators. Well, Brett, what drives you? <laughs> so it's funny because I, I think that question changes a lot. And I think it changes as you get older. But, you know, originally, you know, what, what I think drove me was the fact that I I was a real estate agent. And, you know, that was, in my opinion, not something that people would ever and awe over and say, wow, you got a real estate license because, you know, anyone and their brother could get a real estate license if they had a thousand bucks and, you know, a couple weeks to kill. So it, it didn't take a whole lot and I felt like I needed to go above and beyond what is generally associated with real estate agents. And that was probably just a personal issue I had, but I'm the son of a surgeon and, you know, I ended up going and getting two degrees and I ended up settling for a, a real estate license as, as my career. So I always felt like I needed to you know, prove to people that if I wanted to, I could have gone and gotten a you know higher education degree, or you know somehow that I'm worthy of of something beyond you know a simple real estate life. And so that's what it was in the beginning. Was I had to prove a point to uh, more more so myself, but what I thought was to other people. Um, but more recently, it's it's really turned into you know I'm driven to become financially independent or financially able to retire so I'm never going to stop working, but I want to be able to pick and choose and do things that aren't based on money. I don't want money to drive me. I want to be able to kind of check that box as being, you know, a part of my life that's resolved so I can go out and I can work with whomever I want, do whatever I want, not worry about turning a profit right away if I feel like the work I'm doing is, is, you know, important and matters. And I want that kind of flexibility to know that you know, everything's taken care of for the rest of my life. Now I can focus on really enjoying it more so than, you know, having to make money and, and deal with the stress that comes with that.
0: Brett, earlier you mentioned that the reason you got into real estate is you were investing. You bought a fourplex, saw that agent had done well there, and decided to dive in. Have you continued to invest in real estate?
1: Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> and its uh, I wish I'd never started, but... Um, you know, the market obviously dropped and, and I was buying you know, properties that I would buy and hold for the most part. And I, I still own a four family and a five family that, you know, make decent money but are just really annoying. You know, in, in the scheme of everything, they're not making me that much money. So just even getting a call to come over and fix a light bulb or do something you know, really, really minor is just more of a, a thorn in my side. So I don't like it because it's not something that's going to earn me a ton of money. and It's not something I'm passionate about. But the other reason I don't invest in it is I think it's a conflict of interest with the investors that I work with. So a lot of, if, if I was out flipping homes, which there's a lot of agents that do, and if I was trying to pass along a deal to somebody else, they'd say, well, why don't you want it for yourself? Or, you know, I don't want to use you because if I find a good deal and I tell you about it, you might go buy it. So for me, it was, you know, I, I'll make more money in the long run working with investors than your agent than flipping a home here and there, in my opinion.
0: Well, Brad, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting into business, what would you tell them to do first? The first thing you should do is join the team, for
1: sure. Because no one's going to care about you more than your team leader. No one's going to actually have what I think are more modern, you know, cutting-edge strategies for growing your business than a successful team leader. Uh, so the best thing that you can do is you know, put yourself under the mentorship of someone who is going to basically train you for free or only, you know, take money when you make money and just, you know, stick with that person as long as you can. If you decide that you want to do your own thing and be your own agent, you can. Uh, There's a lot of people who are perfectly happy just, you know, playing a role in the team. But, you know, if you're lucky enough to to seek out a successful team and get brought on, uh, then learn everything you can because it's super, super easy to burn out in this business or, you know, to just find that you can't make it after six months, and those people I see having the most success and in turning into rockstar agents themselves are the ones who actually are humble enough to learn from others instead of going into the to the marketplace thinking they know everything.
0: Brett, do you think the top agent interviews, like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent, are valuable? Of course, I think they're fantastic. It's you know, there's not enough
1: people, in my opinion, that uh, that really pay attention to what's going on in the industry and are focused on you know, continuing to learn and improving their their real estate knowledge or just their business business savviness. So when you have the opportunity to listen to anyone do an interview, you know, you can learn from their mistakes. You can learn what works for them and what hasn't worked for them. But it also means that, you know, you're actually lifting your head from the uh, day-to-day tasks that go on within your business, and you're saying, I want to make myself better, whether it's just in real estate or in life or in a future business. And there's not enough people in our industry, in my opinion, that actually, you know, make that a priority, you know, on a regular basis. So I think these are great because it's, it's real stories and people can share, you know, when they have succeeded as well as when they failed and not
0: simply look out there to, to push
1: out a puff teeth about how great they are.
0: Well, Brett, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners?
1: I would say don't. Don't ever get to the point where you're complacent in your business because once you stop growing, then you're at risk of being destroyed in some capacity by the market or by a competitor. So always be uh, looking to improve uh, the way that you operate. And then that and last but not least, I can't stress enough the importance of systems in your business. Even you know, as a as a new agent or as a young agent with very little going on. The fastest way to grow is to have processes that can easily be duplicated and that you can leverage out with others.
0: Well, Brett, you've grown quickly by mastering systems and leveraging with others. You've succeeded in down and up markets in the recession and the expansion. When the market was falling, you mastered REO and sold 494 homes in one year. When the market went up, you switched mastered traditional sales, and sold 260 homes. You've looked for small changes that make a big difference, like digging deeper in the gathering contact information for expired listings to make better contacts. Very few agents are resilient enough to excel in both down and up markets. You are one such agent. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 221 homes last year, his sixth year in real estate. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all.